Here y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, back by the woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. In the West, often many of our heroes are courageous characters in films who selflessly save the world and make us feel hopeful about humanity. Or sometimes we just idolize the millionaire actors who portray them. Many of us look up to musicians and artists who create some display that brings attention to an injustice that exists in our free societies, which thankfully they can do without real fear for their lives. Yet in real life, and not so far from our shores, are ordinary people who are truly courageous and outspoken in the face of real danger. True heroes, some of which have been murdered by true villains that sadly most of us have never heard of. I'm talking about the many political dissidents suffering around various authoritarian regimes around the world that, for whatever reason, our mainstream media outlets and entertainment industries either ignore or are ignorant of. So today, We're going to try to give some amplification to a few of these voices that have been muted by prison walls, bullets, and or our deafness. Here to help us is Alberto de la Cruz, managing editor of babaloublog.com, a website dedicated to highlighting the plight of those suffering oppression around the world, but with an emphasis on Cuba. So, first of all, you want to give us a little bit of background about yourself? I was born in the United States, the child of uh, two Cuban refugees that came here from Cuba in the uh, in the early 60s. I was the last one uh, of uh, the youngest of three. Uh, I have two siblings that were both born in Cuba. But I was raised here in, in Miami, in Little Havana, in a Cuban household and didn't learn English until... I went to school, and even then, Spanish was compulsory. Our school was filled with teachers, Cuban-American teachers that had all fled Cuba as well. So the funny thing is that I didn't really realize I hadn't been born in Cuba until until I was about six or seven years old. All my friends were from Cuba, had been born in Cuba. All my family had been born in Cuba. And that's where I picked up the nickname, uh, the Americanito. The little American is uh, everybody. All my family was so proud that that I was an American citizen, and they were still working on or obtaining their American citizenship. And I was always told how lucky I was to have been, you know, born in freedom and born in this country. So I was raised with an appreciation for the freedom we have here in the United States, and uh, with a heavy dose of what happens when you live under a, a totalitarian communist regime which would happen in Cuba. And that was basically what formed my, my upbringing. You know, I grew up here in Miami, a bunch of Cuban friends, a bunch of friends from South America, a bunch of American friends, Jewish friends, Greek friends. Oh, one big melting pot is, you know, Miami's a very diverse city. And didn't really think about my Cuban heritage because it was all around me. And it wasn't until the Elian Gonzalez scandal that it really woke up the Cuban roots in me, and as I've always said, you know, uh, I'm American by birth and Cuban by blood, so it's a very, it's an odd mix, it's difficult to explain, but it's very, but very typical for a first generation uh, American born of uh, refugee parents, and that's basically, you know, how I came, got into all of this, and got into 
the whole Cuba human rights issue and started writing. And then I started writing at uh, Babalu in 2007. I became managing editor a year or two after that and been plugging away every year. And in June will be 15 years since Babalu blog has been online. I want to talk about some key figures in, I guess you would call the dissident movement. The ones that come to mind first are the ladies in white. For the uninitiated, who are the ladies in white? Well, the ladies in white are the female relatives of political prisoners, uh, the mothers, the wives, the sisters, the daughters, the grandmothers. And the ladies in white got their start back in 2003 during what they call the Black Spring of 2003 in Cuba. And that was one day that the Cuban dictatorship sent out its state security and they rounded up 75 independent journalists and librarians that were operating all over Cuba and They arrested them all and prosecuted them, uh, charged with a crime which is called Law 88. It's basically the gag law. And that law says you cannot speak ill of the revolution or of the the Castro family or against socialism. And that law carried a 20-year mandatory sentence. So most of these men were summarily tried, very speedy trial in, in a kangaroo court. The ladies in white were their wives and their daughters and their sisters and their grandmothers and their mothers that all banded together, wore white, and to call attention to them and began marching. And it was a peaceful march. They didn't go out there screaming or riots or anything. All they did was dress all in white and march on Sunday mornings with gladiolas in their hands, march together in two rows and go to church and then march together back home. In Cuba, that's not allowed. That was back in 2003. So for the past 15 years, they've been harassed, arrested, killed, beaten up, sexually assaulted. There was a case where one got literally tarred. They threw hot tar at her. They throw rocks at them. It's a pretty dire situation. And every Sunday, dozens of them are arrested as they try to go to church because they they try to stop them from from marching. What was the impetus for the arrest? These were people that were reporting out of Cuba what was really happening in Cuba, and uh. librarians who had banned books in in Cuba, like 1984, banned pamphlets uh, in Cuba. It's illegal to have a copy of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. These independent librarians were had created libraries in their homes and letting people to come in and, and check out books and read books and be able to read. The, the media that had been banned by the regime. So that's brilliant, as far as subversion. With the ladies in white, I do remember there was a mass arrest of them when President Obama had come to Cuba. And can you talk about that, what they were trying to do during his visit? Well, they knew that during Obama's visit that the press was going to, to be out there. Uh, you're going to have the whole... You know, basically every media organization in the world was going to be present for this historic visit by by President Obama to, to Cuba. And they knew that the ladies in white weren't going to let this opportunity go by for them to be able to be out there and 
to be able to talk to the press and give interviews and be able to get their message out. So in the week leading up to Obama's visit, they rounded a, a whole bunch of them up and threw them in jail, didn't let them out until Obama was gone and the press was gone. Did President Obama ever acknowledge their existence or was he aware of it? He acknowledged their existence, uh, and he was aware of that, but he had an agenda he wanted to pursue. And one of the things about doing business with the Castro regime is if you want them to sit down and talk to you, you're not allowed to bring up any of those topics. You can't bring up human rights. You can't bring up any of those things. So that, that was agreed upon before he came. Well, yeah, basically they would do that or there was going to be no trip. I mean, there, there's a reason when, when you look at the whole thaw of the relationship between Cuba and the United States, the United States was the one that made all the concessions. The Castro government made no concessions whatsoever. I'm sure there's a lot of conjecture here, but what was the whole point of, of him going to Cuba in the first place? Because it seemed like initially he gave some kind of signal I think he had spoken highly of, was it uh, Yanni Sanchez, maybe? Right, Yanni Sanchez, yeah. Yeah, and so I was kind of surprised when he did that, because, of course, he's a man of the left. But then, of course, he makes, like you say, kind of concessions to you know a murderous dictator. What's your take on all that? Well, I mean, I, I can't get inside his head and, and figure out what exactly he's thinking, but I do know what he says, and I do know what he did, and I can see what his national security advisors, people like Ben Rhodes and Tommy Vader, what they say and things that they were doing, and just from the basic outcome of, of those of that thought, of that reproachment. And I think the Castro dictatorship has always been a, they've enjoyed being like a poster boy for, for the left. For some reason, they just love the, well, I want to say for some reason, we know the reasons, they love the, the, the Castro regime. They love that the Castro regime has stuck their thumb in the eye of the United States. You know, they love to say things like, oh, you know, Fidel Castro outlasted six or seven presidents. <laughs> Did anybody stop to think that why has he been president for six or seven American presidents? <laughs> There's something wrong there. Yeah. So they do have that love affair with the Castro regime. And and I think being someone who, who subscribes to, to leftist type thought as Obama – did and there was a certain type of respect that he had for the Castro regime and I think honest personally my theory is that he felt that the United States should not have sanctions against the Castro regime that we should be talking with them and that we should be doing business with them I think he honestly believes that the Castro regime has done a lot of good things in Cuba I think he he came in with a preconceived outcome and the outcome was going to be that we're going to legitimize this regime and it'll be irreversible and I think We've found out that's not the case. Has he ever admitted that that trip didn't go so well in the end? I don't think he's ever admitted he's made a mistake. Uh, oh, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the ladies in white. Today, where do they stand? Same place every Sunday. They're attacked. This past Sunday... I forget the number, a couple dozen of them got arrested. This goes on every single Sunday. Wow. They started a campaign uh, a couple years ago. It's called the, the Todos Marchamos campaign, and that's the direct translation is We All March. And it's the ladies in white and a couple of other opposition groups that are all involved in this campaign. And it's a campaign that they all get together on Sunday to march 
demanding the release of political prisoners. So this past Sunday was, I believe, the 145th Sunday of that campaign. Mm -hmm. And it was the 145th Sunday that they were beaten, dragged through the streets, arrested. One of the things that they like to do is sometimes they'll pick up these ladies in white. They'll take their purses. They'll take their phones. They'll take their money, whatever money they have on them, and then they'll drive them about 30 or 40 miles out of town and then drop them off on some desolate road at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday. So it's here, you know, good luck getting home. My assumption is they could just make them disappear, but international backlash would be bad or more than they could handle the, the regime? I mean, they do make them disappear when they need them to make them disappear. Laura Poyang, which was the first leader of the Ladies in White, during one of their protests, she was attacked, and even one of the news cameras, a picture captured it, uh, one of the attackers injecting her arm with something, mm. sticking a needle in her arm. The next day, her arm was very sore. The day after that, she got very sick, and two or three days later, she died. Mysterious illness. You have the case of Ovaldo Baya, was a very prominent and outspoken opposition leader who had a mysterious car accident and died so uh, they they will kill people if uh orlando zapata tamayo was a political prisoner they they beat him to death and you have several other cases of that if you push comes to shove they will kill you i don't think they're scared of the international backlash so much as that they just don't want to deal with it they're not going to get any backlash for what they call the catch and release where they you know, they'll capture them, stick them in, in prison for a couple of days and then let them go. International community doesn't bother them for that at all. So but if they start killing them all, I think, you know, they'll still get away with it, but they don't want to deal with the with the PR nightmare. Teme por su vida en Cuba? Sí, pero mire, temo por mi vida porque me puede meter un balazo, me puede partir un rayo, me puede pasar uno de los carros eso de la seguridad que me persigue cuando voy en la calle con mi bicicleta. Next up, Ovaldo Payá. Ovaldo Payá was a prominent opposition leader. He was one of the founders of the Varela Project. Varela is the name of a very famous priest, Catholic priest in, in Cuba. And Ovaldo was a very devout Catholic and had a very good relationship with Pope John Paul II and with the Catholic Church outside of Cuba, did not have a good relationship with the Catholic Church inside of Cuba. The leadership had been corrupted or has been corrupted. So he created this Varela Project, and what the Varela Project did was use the laws that the Communist Constitution has against them. It was, it was basically a scheme I don't want to use the word scheme like it was not good, but it, the plan was there, there's a provision in the Constitution that if you get, uh, I believe it's 10,000 signatures of citizens, the National Assembly has to address whatever issue or, or has to put up a vote on whatever issue is on there, whatever request is on that petition. So they went out and they got the required number of signatures to have the National Assembly vote for a plebiscite vote, whether the Cuba wants to continue to be run by a dictatorship, or shall we go to a multi-party system and you know have the, the people elect their leaders? It's not that it was going to win in the National Assemblies. The Cuban government didn't want to have the embarrassment, you know, having a 614 to zero vote against democracy. Right. So 
they delivered it and they ignored it, never did anything. They did not comply by their own constitution. And Ovaldo Payat did not shut up about it. And he continued to talk about it and continued to speak to the press about it. And since he was prominent, he got notoriety and apparently it proved too much for them because he was traveling in a car with another Cuban activist and two human rights activists from from Sweden. And state security ran their car off the road. The two foreigners survived uh, and the two Cubans died. So Ovato Paya and Harold Cepero both were killed in the car accident. Now, according to one of the foreigners, the Swedish men that was there, uh, Ovato Paya was alive and talking when they took him. And, and so was uh, the other one. Well, sorry, he didn't make it. My father was killed by that regime almost six years ago. His crime was to denounce what they are trying to do today. They are trying to make a false, a fraudulent transition from power to power, from a dictator to, a, to the inheritors of the dictatorship. Mm. What the Cuban people want is, free, is freedom. What the Cuban people want is to decide another system, a system in which they could actually choose their, their way to live. His daughter, Rosa Maria Paya, has taken the torch from her dad and I've had the pleasure and the honor of, of meeting her and, and talking to her. The fire burns in her as, as strongly and as hot as it did in her dad. And she's doing an incredible job of continuing his work. Has she been persecuted at all? Oh yeah, she's constantly followed when she's in Cuba. As a matter of fact, they give out, uh, I think it was a couple months ago, they give out a, a prize, the Ojoado Paya Freedom Prize. And the two winners this year was the two former presidents from Latin America. Both of them came to Cuba to receive the prize and both were kicked out of the country. One was Chilean and the other one Uruguayan. And that created a, a major diplomatic issue for the Castro regime. But since the press won't report about it and won't really talk about it outside of our human rights activists, they were able to live through it. Back to the work of her father and getting the, the signatures. The first thing that occurred to me, wouldn't that just be an invitation for the government to track all those people down that had signed the petition and then make life difficult for them somehow? Oh, absolutely. But it's something that a lot of people don't understand about living in a totalitarian society. They don't have the resources or the money to be able to track everybody down and to physically oppress every single person. So what they do is they set examples. It opens it up for those people, but they're not going to arrest all 10,000 people. They don't have the space in the jails. They'll go through the list and pick out the ones that are that are going to set an example or send a message. And those are the ones they'll go after. I, I remember when they opened the trips up to Cuba. And just to give you an example, you know, obviously we didn't think that was a good idea to have tourists going to Cuba. And uh, being that it's a totalitarian state and you really can't do anything there other than to have a good time and you're not really helping the Cuban people. Mm -hmm. And I received an email from a gentleman that says, well, you know, I was on one of the first trips that went to Cuba and I never felt threatened. I never felt state security came after me. I never saw anybody following me. I was went all over Havana and, and I did whatever I wanted and no one ever bothered me. And I responded to him, how many dissidents did you go see? Mm -hmm. He says, well, you know, I didn't 
see any. I didn't know of any. I, I didn't go see any dissidents. He goes, they don't have to watch you. They just have to watch the dissidents. If you would have visited a dissident, I guarantee you, by the time you got back to your hotel, state security would have been waiting for you until you pack up your stuff and you're out of here. Let's just say that it's a very efficient system that they have of oppression. It's not done by brute force. It's done surgically. Cuban state security was trained by the, the East German Stasi, not the KGB. It's a marriage of communist brutality with German efficiency. It was the East German Stasi that they brought in in the 60s, and they're the ones that wrote all the policies and procedures and, and trained the Cuban state security. You never know who's listening, you know, who you're talking to if this person is, can I be honest with this person? Can I really say what I think? Or are they going to turn me in? That's how they do it. They don't need an agent on every corner. They get people to do it for them. And that's what the Stasi was very good at. One of the, the more infamous stories that several people have experienced it was in, and I don't know if they still do this, but I know they did it in the 60s and 70s, is they would get school children. You know, they're taught to be atheists and they're taught that everything comes from the state. So one of the things they did with the kids, they have them close their eyes and ask God for candy. And all the kids close their eyes, now pray to God and ask him for candy. You know, they wait a few, you know, a minute and they say, okay, open your eyes and there's nothing in front of them. Now close your eyes and ask Fidel for candy. All the kids close their eyes and then the teacher will go around and put candy on each of their desk. Now open your eyes. You know, you, you look at that and you go, well, you know, it's, it's a little trick you play on a kid. But, you know, on a six or seven year old, that stays with you. That could form you. It really affects your, your worldview and how you view life. And that's how they get the kids to turn on their parents. Because the kids no longer look at their parents. I know a former political prisoner who's exiled here now, and he told me he got kicked out of high school because they kept telling him that he had to recite, you know, we will be like Che, Che Guevara. And he raised up his hand and he asked the teacher, you know, why aren't you saying that we should be like Jose Marti? Jose Marti being uh, Cuba's George Washington, uh, the founder of the nation. And they says, no, it's supposed to be Che. And he says, Che wasn't even Cuban. He was Argentinian. Why should we be like Che? And... He ended up getting kicked out of school for saying that because you, you have to, everything allegiance has to be to the state and to who they tell you. The, the moment you deviate from that, you're considered subversive and their favorite thing to say is that you have psychological issues because, you know, how can you think anybody but the state provides you with everything? It's sad that that works on the left. It seems like in any country, even in the United States, that if you don't think a certain way, They'll work to either convince you that you're mentally ill or you know, try to get you fired. This has come up a lot recently. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a favorite tactic of the left. I guess now you could say if you know you don't agree with them, you're a Russian bot or, right. or something. But you know, they they can't just can't fathom that anybody would think differently. You know, we hear about these injustices, not only in Cuba, but in other countries as well. As Americans that sit in you know, comfort, what can they possibly do to help? And the next part of my question is, you've mentioned both the ladies and White and Mr. Paya were devout Christians. As a Christian, why should this matter? It doesn't seem to register with a lot of folks in the United States, at least in my experience. And even beyond that, just as a human being or a humanitarian, why should it matter and why should it cause us to do something? As far as from Christian perspective, as Jesus 
said in, in the Gospels, when I was in jail, you visited me. When I didn't have clothes, you, you clothed me. When I didn't have food, you fed me. And the people turn and say, when did we ever see you like that? And he says, if you did it for any of my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. And I see it from as from a Christian perspective and as a devout Christian myself, I look at it from the perspective of I'm helping brothers and sisters that don't have a voice, that cannot get their information out there. Uh, our website and what I do, I do not do this for a living. I could never do this for a living. We do not get paid to do this. We, we pretty much fund this out of our own pockets and a few donations that we get here and there to pay for bandwidth and pay for the server and to try to get around social media that's been shadow banning us now for the past few months. It's a labor of love for us and, and to help our brothers and sisters. And if you go to the site, you'll you'll notice we're Cuba-centric. That's what, you know, it's who we are. That's what we concentrate on. But we cover wherever there is communist tyranny and oppression, we're covering it. So, you know, we cover what's going on in Venezuela, what's going on in Nicaragua, what's going on in North Korea, in Vietnam, in China, in Russia, Turkey, wherever there's tyranny, we're there. Uh, obviously, our specialty is the Cuba issue because of our heritage and because the majority of us live here in Miami and we're immersed in that community. But for us, it's, it's just helping. And, and as far as what other Americans can do to help the cause, the first thing we have to really understand is the only people who could set Cubans free are Cubans. So I, I think what's important for us to do is to give them the opportunity to do that. If they hold free elections in Cuba next week and they put on the ballot, do you want to have a communist dictatorship or do you want to move to a multi-party democracy and there's a fair vote and the majority vote for a dictatorship and that's what wins then you know what that's what they wanted but i want them to have the choice right now they don't have that choice so i think as americans the best thing we can do is to amplify their muted voices because the main problem that they have is for instance the ladies in white getting arrested by the dozens every single week yet not one major media organization picks that story up. The European Union doesn't really care about that. You have Canada doing extensive business with the Cuban dictatorship, and no one ever calls them to task for it. I think if you make it uncomfortable to look the other way and force the world to look at Cuba, what's going on in Cuba, the regime wouldn't last a month. They would not be able to endure that. The reason they've lasted for nearly 60 years is because the world has allowed them to last for 60 years. And I think that's the most important thing we can do. And that's the whole point of our of our website is to get that information out in English for the English-speaking public because there's so much misinformation about Cuba that's going on. It's you know, it's very frustrating to me to read an article about President Raul Castro, who made him president, or President Fidel Castro. No one ever elected them. They never had an election. You know, that's not a president. You know, to hear about free health care in Cuba, our website is full, and there's plenty of websites, photos from what the free health care looks like in Cuba. It's, it's not even third world, it's fourth world. Free education. It's not education, it's indoctrination. We have photos of the books. <laughs> you know, they, the word for gun in, in Spanish is, is arma. So they do the little alphabet, and the A is arma, and they show a gun, and they show a, a revolutionary 
fighter, gorilla, holding a, an AK-47. That's how they learn the alphabet. So it's indoctrination. It's not education. So I, I think if we can get the world to stop looking the other way and focus on what's really happening in Cuba, I, I don't think they, they could survive that. That would help the Cuban people to, to take back their country. Babalu, when we started the website in 2003, Babalu.com had already been taken by a restaurant called Babalu somewhere okay. in the Midwest or something, and they didn't want to give up the name. And, you know, Babalu has a lot of meaning to it, so somebody's waiting to sell it for a lot of money, and we don't have the money to buy it. So we had to go with Babalublog.com. What's the meaning of the word? Babalu is actually one of the gods from the whole Santeria religion in Cuba. And the Santeria religion, to give you just a brief, if you're not familiar with it, when the slaves were brought over uh, from Africa to Cuba to, to harvest the sugarcane, and Cuba was, was a Spanish colony, and the Spaniards brought the slaves over, they forcibly converted them to Catholicism. So what the Africans did was continue to practice their African religion, but they started to disguise it with Catholic saints. So they took each of the Catholic saints and they said, yes, we're worshiping St. Barbara, but it's actually, once the Spaniards left, they say, well, she's really this, I forget the name of it, It's she's this goddess. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of like a mix of Catholicism and African tribal religions, and they have a bunch of different gods and a bunch of different saints, and Babalu was one of them. But that's not the reason why we, we named the blog Babalu. As Cuban-American kids growing up here in the United States in, in the 60s and 70s, mainly in the 70s, there was only one show on TV we could relate to, and that was I Love Lucy. It was half American, half Cuban, and... We understood everything he said in English, and he, we understood everything he said in Spanish. And even the words he mangled in English, we knew what he was trying to say. Right. You know, and it was the show that we could relate to, which was a Cuban operating in an American culture. That was, for us, was, you know, our little home on, on television. Val Prieto, who is the founder of the blog, he picked that name because it's it's something that we all relate to. Even though I, we got accused on Facebook the other day by someone saying that we were worshiping a, a diabolical god. It's like, you need to have grown up in, in Miami and watching I Love Lucy to understand what we're talking about. Since the blog has been an operation, what are some tangible difference that you think you can gauge that your blog has made? One of the uh, factors that I think gives us a good indication that we've been effective is that we're attacked pretty regularly by Cuban cyber warriors. We're banned in Cuba. You can't access the website in Cuba. I look at the traffic occasionally. I'll go in and see where the traffic is coming from and always surprised to see certain government agencies that are, visit the blog on a regular basis. <laughs> And we don't have a lot of traffic and sheer numbers that a highly successful website would have. But considering that we're a pretty niche blog uh, website that's on a, on a topic that's not really 
up front. We we have good traffic, and and as I've always said, the quality of our traffic is is really what's impressive. Is we get some very interesting people that that follow us. Now, in a lot of other communist countries. A lot of people use VPNs or proxies to get around the censorship. Is, is that a reality in Cuba? Have you ever used a VPN? Uh, yeah, when I was living in China. It's difficult right. and sometimes and not very slow. Yeah, not worth it sometimes, but yeah. Right. Well, imagine it's frustrating when, when you have a an internet connection that's giving you maybe, even if you have a slow internet connection with 5 or 10 megabits per second, it's very cumbersome. So imagine in Cuba where the internet speed is dial-up speed. It's virtually unusable. Right. And I'm sure they got most of those VPNs blocked. Again, that's one of the frustrating things. You had Google putting in servers over there, but like they did in China, they're allowing the blockage of sites. You said that you guys have been hacked, I guess, or been attacked. As far as the hacking goes, they've only managed to to take us down temporarily a couple of times, Mm -hmm. you know, through DNS attacks. But what ended up happening is we, our internet service, we do not use a big name internet service provider. We use a smaller company that we've had from the very beginning. They actually had to put us on our own server because we would get attacked so often that it would affect the other sites that were on that server. Wow. So they had to isolate us and put us on one server by itself. So when we would get attacked, it wouldn't affect everybody else and they would be able to narrow it down where the attack was coming from. Well, that's awful accommodating of the company. Yeah, they're super cool. They're, it's a great company and... We're very happy with them, and that's why we've never switched. We were one of their first accounts. We have a very good relationship with them, and they really help us out a lot. But, you know, the attacks are not at the same level that they were happening before, because I think, you know, they kind of figured out that they're wasting their time. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be able to take us out, so they're probably directing their resources elsewhere. Cuban government has a big, they call them cyber warriors, and they're all over Twitter and Facebook that i've seen a huge increase in attacks there i get harassed by them all the time on twitter they can't argue on facts so they just try to shut you up which is very familiar to other things that are going on in the world these days i wanted to ask about the complicity of facebook or twitter or google are they cooperating with the dictatorship and it goes back to, to something I mentioned when we, we first started. If you want to deal with the Cuban government, if you want access to Cuba, if you want to get in there, you have to play by their rules. Before we even start talking, you have to promise us you're going to give us this, and if you don't give us that, we're not even going to talk. When someone like Google walks in there and says, we want to put servers and we want to increase internet access and all, they'll tell Google, that's great, that's wonderful, this is what you have to do. You know, it's not like Cuba provides this incredible, a lot of money or anything like that, but... Yeah, I was trying to figure out what their angle would be. Well, you know, Google has this, you know, do no evil type thing, and they're probably thinking, let's just give everybody access, and, Hmm. and, you know, we'll worry about that later. But, you know, the problem is that the Cuban government doesn't give anything away. And if you look at it the way they do, for instance, business deals with foreign governments and foreign entities... I'll give you a perfect example, and, and you can just extrapolate that or, or transfer that to technology, and it'll be the exact same thing. If, For instance, if I'm a Spanish hotel company or a British hotel company or, or, or someone like that, and I want to build a hotel in Cuba, I'll walk in there and the Cuban government will say, here's the no negotiation part of the deal. You put up all the money, Cuban government owns 51% of the hotel, and you have to hire 
all your employees from us. Are you willing to do that? Yes? Okay. Then you can build your hotel. So then you have a company, Spanish company, like for instance, Melia, who's a huge Spanish hotel company, has several hotels in Cuba. They build these hotels, they own 49% of them. Cuban government owns 51%. Cuban government put up no money. Melia spent all the money to build it. They had to pay the Cuban government to build it. And obviously, probably cost them two, three times as much to build. They have to hire all their employees from the Cuban government. So what the Cuban government does is you say, you know, you need 50 maids. Okay, they cost you $3,000 a month each. Mm. Melia says, wow, that's cheap. That's great. We'll take care of everything else. They pay the maids $20 a month. Mm. It's slavery. Transfer that to the technology side, and, and it's the same thing. Maybe you don't have as the, the people or the construction side of it, but basically is you're going to build this for me. The cellular service in Cuba is all built by an Italian company. But the only way that the Italian company can get in there and make some money off of it was to give control of it to the Cuban government. So the Cuban government uses the cell phones. That's why, for instance, you'll have, during the May Day festivities, they cut off all the dissident cell phones. They shut them down. They turned off their lines because the Cuban government has control of it. It's Italian technology, Italian systems. The only way the Italians can get in there and make money off of cellular service in Cuba is to give control to the Cuban government. So I assume no one's tried to shame these companies with any kind of success? Well, we try to shame them every day. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, it's the mighty dollar. Think about it. You're a business and you can go into a market that's completely controlled. And if you can get into that market... The government there is going to make sure you have no competition. Well, I hope it's worth their souls. As a Cuban communist, I just say savage capitalism. Mm, right. <laughs> like I mentioned, the Malia hotel chain, the Spanish chain, has all these hotels. They're using slave labor. Again, it goes back to what I said. If we can get enough people to speak out about it and to be aware of that, Rosemary in Des Moines, Iowa, to put a post up on, on a hotel website saying, oh, I won't go to this hotel because they do business there. That's what gets their attention. Cuban Americans in Miami are, are yelling and screaming, that, well, the, you know, we're those crazy Cubans from Miami. The media's done all they can to marginalize us. But it, once you get that out there and people start speaking about it, go back to what happened in South Africa with the apartheid and the anti-apartheid movement. It's the whole world turning against the apartheid government in South Africa that brought it down. It wasn't that they couldn't hold off the people. They had firm control of the country. It was that the whole entire world turned on them. I've said this often because I've had these discussions with folks who you know, know world history, and, and we always ask, like, how come the world doesn't know that these things go on, or that they seem indifferent? I always say, well, all it needs is a little Steven or a Steven Spielberg or somebody to make that one film or that one album. Things would change, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, it would make a huge difference, but the Castro's is such a darling of the left, and, you know, the entertainment business is left-leaning. Nobody wants to be that person that gets shunned by their peers. You can have Michael Moore and Oliver Stone and Danny Glover and Sean Penn touting how wonderful Cuba is and how wonderful Venezuela is, and people just laugh, oh, they're just lefties. But if one of them were to come out and say the Castro's are, is a tyranny and there's human rights abuses going on and all that, they would get shunned. You know, they'd lose opportunities. I, that's why, you know, we keep plugging away. Like, yeah. you know, like the old saying goes, you know, uh, the one who gives up loses. Yeah. So that's we're going to continue plugging away. Hey, thank you, Mr. Cruz, for your time. No, it's my pleasure. 
If you'd like to learn about more political dissidents and keep posted about some of the ones that we've talked about today, you can go to babalublog.com, and that is spelled B-A-B-A-L-U-B-L-O-G.com. Or you can follow Mr. Cruz on Facebook and Twitter, his name again being Alberto de la Cruz. And you can also follow Osvaldo Paya's daughter, Rosa Maria Paya, on Twitter. And Paya is spelled P-A-Y-A. And if you'd like to hear more stories like this in audio form, you might check out In the Corner Back with the Woodpile, episodes 18, where we talk to a survivor of the East German communist regime, or episode 76 with Dr. Ming Wang, a survivor of China's communist cultural revolution, or episode 129, where we talk to Cuban exile poet Juana Rosa Pita. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Counter Guy. You can send us an email via SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and Podbean.com. Peace and chicken grease!